You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the work of author Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode two. Hi, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of Metamore City. You can find my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com, and this podcast is going out in both of those places. We're going to start the show today with your weekly writing report. As you'll recall from last week's episode, my plan was to spend an hour a day, six days a week, writing. This week I only wrote on five days. I had late nights at work on Thursday and Friday, and I wasn't able to get to the writing desk earlier in the day, so I ended up missing those days. I made up for it by writing for two and a half hours on Saturday and an hour on Sunday, for a total of six and a half hours. I wrote a total of 4,900 words this week, averaging 754 words per hour. All of those words were on a Metamore City novella I've been working on, and I'm going to start sharing that novella with you today. So, let's get to the story. Today I'm going to read you the first part of my new Metamore City novella, which is called To Walk in Shadow. I started writing this in September of 2011, but it sat untouched for a long time while I worked on finishing up Things Unseen. I picked it up again last year, added a bit more, and then left it until this month, and now I'm making a solid push to finish it. Those of you who listened to the Metamore City Live audio drama from Balticon in 2011 will recognize our protagonist in this episode, and if you haven't listened to that one yet, you can find it in the special episodes section of the archive at metamorecity.com. The name of that show is Double Trouble. I think you'll enjoy it. And now, without further ado, here is part one. To Walk in Shadow by Chris Lester Part One The Pact The sun hid itself on the day the devil came to the city. Thick, forbidding clouds crept in from the north overnight, a dark, angry carpet rolling in to presages coming. Thunder rumbled in those clouds, brooding sullenly around the high towers, like a giant grumbling over his pieces on a chessboard, but no rain fell. The air was cold and clammy, full of mist and stranger things, shapes that danced in the corner of the eye, then disappeared when one looked at them directly. And if their disappearance was often followed by the faint whispers of mocking laughter, those who were so afflicted would eventually shake their heads and continue onward, wondering at the strange state of mind the clouds had engendered. Agent Jessup sat alone in the thick of the fog, at the top of Matthias Tower, behind the yoke of a large black skimmer with tinted windows. The landing pad where he waited was one of the smaller ones at the skyport, well away from the commercial shipping traffic. Private shuttles and light flyers sat hunched in their hangar bays, looking as cramped and discomfited as a flock of pigeons huddling on a windowsill in an autumn storm. No one was flying today if they could avoid it. No one but the guest he had been sent to meet. The aircraft approached with a deep, heavy thrum that was unlike anything Jessup had heard before. It was not painfully loud, as mana engines usually were, nor was it the low, soothing hum of drive turbines. It was an insidious sound, one that crept in from the edges of his perception, 
and left him anxious and on edge before he even knew it was there. Jessup straightened his thin black tie for the eleventh time, reseated the black suit jacket on his narrow shoulders, and peered out into the gloom. It was nearly on top of him before he saw it, black, huge, gull-winged, a monstrosity of aggressive points and sharp angles, like a manta ray crossed with a scorpion. It filled the sky over Jessup and the skimmer, and only the lack of any directional light kept it from draping the whole platform in shadow. Long, broad landing skids emerged from the lifting body of the craft, and it settled to the concrete like a raptor returning to the nest. After a long moment, the engine spun down, leaving a heavy, expectant silence that was somehow worse than the soul-churning thrum. Jessup waited. When no one emerged from the craft, he opened the door and got out. He walked over to one of the landing skids and looked up at the vessel. No lights, no lettering, no visible doors or access ports. He walked to the skid on the opposite side and found the same. The faceted, radar-deflecting fuselage bore only one distinguishing symbol, the same that marked the V-shaped stabilizers on the tail assembly. A pentagram, point down and circumscribed, drawn in thin traces of electric blue. Even in the enshrouding mist, the star gleamed with a pale, phosphorescent glow. Jessup raised a hand to knock on the vessel's hull, then thought better of it. In any case, he wasn't sure he could reach high enough to touch any part of the craft that was likely to carry the sound to the cockpit. A cold wind whispered past, sending a chill down the back of his neck, the phantom laughter coming again from a place infinitely distant and far too near. He shuddered and returned to the skimmer, the wind wrapping itself around him like the arms of a dead lover. He slammed the door shut and cranked the heater to maximum. A polite, cultured voice came from behind him. You know, if the climate disagrees with you, it seems far more efficient to just wear a thicker coat. You needn't stand on formality on my account. Jessup jumped halfway out of his seat. He spun around, pressed himself against the dashboard, and looked back into the shadows of the skimmer's rear compartment. A tall man sat in the seat behind him, dressed in a dark business suit and crossing his legs as if completely at his leisure. He shifted, cocking one foot toward the ceiling, and the suit glittered with fine threads of iridescence woven into the fabric. The car's thick black upholstery seemed to blend and merge in the shadows with his black suit, as well as his black skin. Not brown skin, like an Arambian, but true black. Black like an oil spill. Black like a raven's wing. No human being was ever born that color. Certainly no Arambian had those piercing cerulean blue eyes, which carried a faint gleam that might or might not have been a reflection. Holy! Jessup bit back his words, clenching his jaw shut before anything moronic came out. The man grinned, or bared his teeth, Jessup wasn't sure. They gleamed a shocking white against black skin, and the keen blue eyes narrowed to slits. Holy! So some have called me, the man said. Others quite the opposite, though really the difference is mostly one of semantics. You may call me Lord. Or Baal. Yes, uh, Lord Baal. The devil chuckled, as if at some private joke, but whatever might have amused him he did not say. 
He raised a hand toward Jessop and made a small sweeping motion, quietly dismissive. "'Drive on, young man. I have no wish to be late for my appointment.' "'Yes, sir. Lord.' Jessop spun up the drive turbines, turned the skimmer around, and headed for the exit lift. He peered into the mirror one last time at the sinister black aircraft. His passenger caught the direction of his gaze and looked back as well, smiling with apparent fondness at his vessel. "'Magnificent, isn't it?' he said, the pride coming through in his voice. "'The finest in divine magic and mortal technology. "'We've brought you a long way for a race of clawless, fangless bipeds.' "'Normally Jessup might have argued in defense of his species. "'He might have said humans were doing just fine without the gods controlling their destinies, "'and that Baal's history of backing tyrants and dictators had spawned millennia of suffering and cruel oppression.' but it was one thing to argue such points at the Academy. It was quite another to start an argument with the Prince of Shadow. Jessop ignored the bait and tried to redirect the conversation. I was just trying to figure out how you move people in and out of that thing. I didn't see any doors. They're on the other side, Baal said smoothly. What, on the top? That doesn't seem very practical. No, the devil said. "'slowly, as if speaking to a small child. "'They are on the other side. "'You will not see them in the mortal dimensions.' "'Understanding dawned. "'So you can't get into the ship at all "'unless you can walk through shadow.' "'He paused, then added, "'Neat trick.' "'He tried to sound casual and only mildly impressed. "'From the way his voice squeaked when it came out, "'he probably hadn't succeeded.' The devil chuckled, then leaned back in the seat and laced his fingers behind his head. "'You're a strange choice for an honor guard, aren't you, Agent?' He paused, as if waiting for Jessop to supply his name. Jessop kept his mouth shut tight. "'Young, inexperienced, obviously intimidated,' Baal went on. "'I would almost think it was meant as an insult, but that isn't Marai's style.' "'What happened? Did you anger one of your superiors or something?' Jessop grimaced. He'd asked about that himself when they gave him the assignment. Specifically, what he'd asked was, "'Oh, gods, why me?' But the gods were not predisposed to explain themselves to mortal men, especially not the gods they were meeting today. "'The commander gave me a job,' Jessop told the prince. "'If he says do this, I do it.' "'Unquestioning obedience to authority, eh?' Baal murmured. "'Impressive. I must commend Marai on the new training regimen.' Jessop decided to quit while he was behind. He kept his mouth shut for the rest of the drive. The meeting was held in the Citadel's western minaret, which was off-limits to the general public, and thus the most secure part of the structure. Jessop took the secret access lift, hidden in a nondescript building 800 meters west of the square. After passing through three layers of checkpoints, he drove down a long underground tunnel and emerged in the VIP parking garage under the Citadel. He sat down in an open spot, secured the parking brake, then got out and opened the door for Ball. This time, at least, the prince used the door like a human being. The place felt curiously abandoned as they took the lifts and passageways to the receiving room. 
The last time he'd been here, Jessup had seen hundreds of clerks, aides, and functionaries bustling around the tower on imperial business. This time there were two receptionists, at the bottom and top of the express lift, and a handful of lightbringers in white dress uniforms, replacing the usual security guards. Everyone else seemed to be gone or deliberately keeping out of sight, which was probably the truth. This meeting was as low-profile as Kaya could make it, but there was no hiding it from the help. The receiving-room door opened ahead of them. The man holding it was a tall and well-muscled theriomorph with the features of a raccoon. He wore a black suit of modern ballistic armor, but the katana at his side spoke of a warrior's training from an earlier age. He crossed his fists over his heart and bowed to their guest of honor, his dark eyes glittering with irony. Baal? Richter? Baal nodded to him, a superior acknowledging the honor due him, and continued past into the room. He showed the god of war his back without the least sign of concern. Jessup hung back, hesitating. Lord Richter, for his part, seemed unruffled by Baal's slight. He turned his grim, too perceptive gaze on Jessup. Did he offer you anything? he asked, his voice low and intense. No, sir, Jessup said. Did you give him any personal information? Stories? Family members? Your favorite food? No, sir. Did you tell him your name? Jessup took a step back, offended. Of course not, sir. Lord Richter bared his teeth in a fearsome grin. Sorry, boy. Can't be too careful, you know that. Yes, sir. Am I free to return to my duties, or should I wait outside? The war god thumped him on the back and almost sent him sprawling. Neither. You're sitting in on the negotiations. Me? Jessup squeaked. He winced, then said again, more quietly, Why me? I'm a rookie. I'm nobody. Honor guard, fine, but if something goes down, what am I going to do against him? Richter sobered. The same thing our veterans would do, just more briefly. He shook his head. But it won't come to that. We all signed a contract on the terms of this little tea party. And if there's one thing Baal appreciates more than his own reflection, it's a contract. He smirked. Part of which requires us to supply a human witness for all negotiations. Jessup blinked. He looked at Ball, now halfway across the room and chatting with a stiff and uncomfortable-looking Lady Nocturna. He asked for that? Why? Who knows, Richter grumbled. Maybe he just wants it to get out that Kaya needs his help for something. It frankly wasn't a big enough sticking point for us to worry about. He gestured toward the table in the center of the room, a long, oval-shaped affair with neat stacks of papers laid out in front of each of a dozen seats. Go on. Stay close to him. See if you can figure out why he wants you here. And what if things, um, go bad at the bargaining table? Jessup asked. Richter patted his back, a little less forcefully than before. We put a proviso of our own in the contract. Whatever happens, he's required to protect you for as long as you're serving as his escort. Ironically, you're safer next to him than anywhere else. That didn't exactly make Jessup feel relaxed about the situation, but it helped a little. Okay, well, I guess I'll go play escort then. Richter nodded to him respectfully. Good luck, agent. Thank you, sir.
Jessup caught up with Baal as he approached Lady Akala. The goddess of healing was dressed in a long, white satin dress that shimmered like the pearls around her neck. Her long, golden hair was bound up in a simple, elegant arrangement, held in place with a comb trimmed in abalone. She raised her wine glass and looked down her long, straight nose at Baal, her sapphire eyes cold and hard. Baal, her tone revealed nothing but her disdain. Hello, sweet sister-in-law, Baal purred. He made a show of looking her up and down. I'm so glad you could be here. It's been too long. Families should really make more of an effort to stay in touch, particularly when the fates remind us how fleeting life can be. A stab of old grief shot through Akala's eyes, and rage came fast on its heels. If the stars died before I saw your face again, it would not be too long, she hissed. You dare to speak of him to me? He who was your better in all but deceit and treachery? Baal smiled blandly. Yes, it's a pity Kamaloth didn't take more lessons from me on that score. He might still be with us. He gestured at her glass. And you might be drinking something finer than half-rotten grapes. Akala's face twisted with abject loathing. Her hand tightened on the glass until Jessup was afraid she would snap the stem. Silence stretched long and brittle between them. My lady? Jessup asked softly. Can I get you anything? Akala took a sudden breath, closing her eyes. Her shoulders rolled back, held there for a moment, then settled into a more relaxed position. When she opened her eyes again, her composure was restored. I shall not break the peace of this conference, she said, her voice low but intense. But do not mistake my self-discipline for forgiveness. She turned on her heel and stalked away to the other side of the room. Ball watched her go his eyes lingering appreciatively on her backside. "'Tell me, agent,' he said, "'are the females of your race as skilled in hatred as ours?' "'No, of course not. Ours have so many more years to practice. Still, there is a certain proportional similarity, is there not?' Jessup held his tongue. After a long moment the devil turned and eyed him, raising his brows expectantly. Ah, so he wanted dialogue. Jessup decided that the safest course was to let the prince do most of the talking. I'm not sure, Lord. Why does she hate you? Oh, Akala's hatred for me is as old as the stars, Baal chuckled. But she has refined it to impressive heights since the death of her husband. She is convinced I had some hand in it. Did you? Jessup asked. Actually, no. Baal said. He sipped his wine and scanned the crowd with studied indifference, like a lion watching a herd of antelope in the afternoon sun. You know we are bound by Geish from slaying one another, my kin and I. The elders forbade it after we slew two of the titans in the age before this one. No direct harm may be done by one of us to another. I had heard that, yes, Jessup admitted. But, um, what about indirect harm? The devil smiled. Oh, I'm not against it, as a rule. But in this case, not even that. I felt it when my brother died, when his essence passed to another. 
but I had no involvement in the matter. Cameloth was sick for many years, diseased of the mind and the heart because of his daughter's betrayal. I had not seen him in many years when he died, and I have no idea why it happened. He shrugged. Not that Akala believes me. Jessup cleared his throat. <clears throat> well, Lord, you are known as the father of lies. Baal looked mildly affronted. Pure propaganda from my brother, young man. In fact, I count it as a matter of pride to speak nothing but the truth. Jessup blinked. I, um, didn't realize that truth was important to you, Lord. Oh, it's not in itself, Baal said. Lying is a useful enough strategy, perhaps, for children and fools. But in the vast array of the manipulative arts, it is by far the crudest and the least imaginative. His electric blue eyes sparkled knowingly. Control someone by telling them lies, and you risk losing all when the truth is discovered. Control someone with the truth, particularly the truth of his own needs and desires, and nothing in the world can release him. Except himself, of course, and the odds against that are greatly in your favor. The devil took another sip of his wine, and turned to face the door at the back of the chamber. I advise you to keep that in mind, young Lightbringer. Ah, at last. The door opened, and without fanfare, Majestrix Kaya glided into the room. She wore a slate-gray pantsuit and a simple white blouse, with a thin silver chain and diamond solitaire earrings. Her silver-white hair looked freshly styled, trimmed short on one side and falling straight to chin level on the other. Her large gray eyes were grave as she took in the room full of fallen gods and goddesses, the crowd fell silent as she looked at them. Even those whose backs had been turned seemed instantly aware of her presence. "'Thank you for coming,' she said to the room at large. "'Friends of Metamore, distinguished guests,' a nod to Baal at this, which he returned in kind. "'Please join me at the conference table, and we shall begin.' The Majestrix took the seat at the head of the long wooden table. Marai, dressed in her white priestess's robes, took the seat at Kaya's right. Her face looked more troubled than Jessup had ever seen it, her feline ears and whiskers lying flat against her fur. Her tail did not lash in agitation, a sign of great self-control for a cat morph, but Jessup could see the tip flexing back and forth very slightly as she took her seat. Lady Nocturna, mistress of dreams, sat on Kaya's left. Her eyes were raven-black today, huge and unreadable in her moon-pale face. Jessup hadn't seen that look on the goddess before, but he suspected it wasn't good. One of Nocturna's crows sat on her shoulder, glaring balefully over at Baal. Nocturna herself did not look at him. Jessup wondered what Baal had said to her earlier. The other gods and goddesses took their places, arranging themselves by some unspoken rule of association with the Majestrix. Akala, the Empire's Minister of Health, Richter, Minister of Defense, Artela, Queen of the Wild and Sovereign of the Elven Nation of Quinardia, and Velena, Goddess of Love and President of the Hope Foundation, all took places near the Majestrix. Talia, the Vampire Queen, and Agemnos, Lord of Avarice and Chairman of Majestic Industries, took seats near the middle of the table 
conferring quietly about some business matter that Jessop couldn't decipher. Ball took the chair at the far end of the table, and no one came to take the seats beside him. He looked up at Jessop and gestured to the seat at his right hand. Jessop swallowed the lump in his throat and sat. "'I believe you all know the matter we are here to discuss,' Kaya said. There were nods and murmurs of affirmation around the table. Baal raised a finger. "'My escort does not,' he said. "'He could use a brief summary of the issues at stake.' A gemnos chuckled, a nasty, sardonic sound. "'Oh, yes, and my driver's completely in the dark.' And Talia's thralls, I imagine. Oh, wait, should we get Kaya's housekeeping staff in here as well? Talia elbowed him in the ribs. Hush. The vampire queen turned her pale blue eyes on Jessup, a speculative expression on her face. Who is this human to you, Prince Baal? My witness, Baal said calmly. As stipulated in my contract with the Majestrix, he cannot witness what he does not comprehend. He raised his eyebrows at Kaya. The Majestrix sighed. Very well. Lord Richter, if you would be so kind. Richter leaned in to the table and looked down the length of it to Jessup. You ever heard of Estorini, son? Jessup frowned. It's a country in Fanshore, isn't it? Not very big. Only a couple of hundred kilometers in any direction, Richter agreed. The Astari are an indigenous mountain people. They've been on that land for at least six thousand years. Jessup nodded. If Lord Richter was the one giving this briefing, he could guess at least part of the problem. Is someone trying to invade them, sir? Invasion has never worked very well against Estorini, Richter said, with what sounded like admiration. They don't go looking for trouble, but they're tough. Have to be where they live. And those mountains are death for foreign armies but there have been some wars in the lowlands around them these last few decades. Some territory changed hands, and now they're completely surrounded by one nation, Majora. Which is not an indigenous people, Valena said, a dark expression on her lovely face. They're descended from Arambian and Yamatoan colonists, like most of the humans in Fanshore these days. And like most colonials, they think undeveloped land is a treasure chest waiting for them to open it. Majora wants the ore in those mountains, Richter said. They've been trying to get it by trade for decades, but the Astari won't deal. The mountains are sacred to them. They think digging mines would anger the local spirits. Which is actually true, Artela said. I have daughters in those mountains. They've taken quite a liking to the Astari. Jessup thought through the possibilities. If one nation wanted what another nation had, and war and trade were both off the table, there weren't a lot of options, unless they were prepared to get very, very nasty. "'What did the Majora do to the Astari, sir?' Jessup asked. Richter glowered. "'Disease,' he said. "'Stafford's fever. We can't prove they did it on purpose, but—' He raised an empty hand, palm upward, and shook his head. Jessup felt sick. "'Oh, gods,' he whispered. "'The Astari have been mostly isolated for six thousand years,' Lady Akala said. She looked as angry now as when she'd been speaking to Baal earlier. "'They have no resistance to this plague. Thousands were dead before we even received word of it.' Jessup looked back and forth between the assembled demigods. 
They might possess only a fraction of their former power, but still... Can't you do something about it? Any of you? Akala looked away, jaw clenched in anger. Valena bowed her head. Nocturna's expression was still remote, unreadable. Sure, son, Victor said. There's a lot we can do. It's a question of what it costs us. Majora is a sovereign nation, and the Empire has agreed to respect other nations' borders. By which he means I have agreed to respect their borders, Majestrix Kaya said. I will not be forsworn, my child. The big reason the Empire has the goodwill it has in the world is because, for as powerful as we are, we try not to meddle, Richter said. If we send skyships through Majoran airspace, a lot of other countries will see that as meddling. The Majestrix will lose some of the moral authority she counts on to get things done diplomatically. Jessup turned to Talia and Agemnos. What about you two? You're not tied to the Empire. If the Church of Eternal Brotherhood sent a few mercy ships, or Majestic hired out its trading vessels... Talia smiled thinly. We've tried that, on both counts. Majora has placed Estorini under quarantine, ostensibly to protect their own people from the epidemic. Which, conveniently, will no longer be a problem when all the Astari are dead, Agemnos said dryly. This is so wrong, Jessup said. We have to do something. We can't let Majora get away with genocide on a technicality. Technicalities, Bal said, can do a great deal more than most people suspect. Which brings us to the matter at hand, Majestrix Kaya said. Majora has forbidden us to enter Asterini across their borders. I intend to send our people by a different path. For just a second, Jessup did not understand. Then he turned and looked at Baal. The Prince of Shadow looked uncharacteristically grave. All traces of his earlier amusement had vanished. You don't know what you are asking for, he said. Kaya raised a hand, palm outward. I know the Realm of Shadow means a great deal to you, she said. I have no interest in violating your domain, or in establishing a lasting presence there. If I had my wish, my people would never set foot there at all. But the crisis is a desperate one, and in desperation I come to you, the keeper of secret paths and unseen doors. Help me, Baal. Tell me your terms. Let me save the Astari. Baal sat back in his chair and steepled his fingers, his expression grave. The silence stretched until Jessup thought he would never answer. Sister Marai let out a heavy sigh and laid her head in her hands, claw-tipped fingers rubbing at her temples. "'What you ask may be impossible,' Baal said at last. "'I do not know if a way can be made between Metamor and Estorini.' He paused. "'But as this is so important to you, Majestrix, I am willing to investigate the matter.' Marai looked up in surprise. Richter glowered. And what will it cost us? Two things, the devil said. First, the Empire's illusionist guilds have suppressed the knowledge of my books. This has left me with a shortage of promising candidates to assist me in certain important work that must be done. If I or my agents should identify an Imperial citizen who presents a favorable prospect for such training, I want your word that we may recruit them without interference." 
He shifted his face to Marai, from the Empire or the Lightbringers. Marai scoffed. If you think you can resurrect the Maranasi and we'll stand by and do nothing, you're deluding yourself. Baal smiled, a cold flash of two white teeth. Calm yourself, star child. The Moranasi were a tool for a bygone age. Much like your priesthood, they are obsolete. No, what I need is much less formal. A reserve of talented illusionists, trained in shadowcraft who may be called upon at need. Talia eyed Baal suspiciously. What would you do with these shadow mages? Baal's expression was patronizing. To understand the answer, young one, you would have to understand my purpose in shadow. Such knowledge is not for children. Talia, who at fourteen hundred and something was younger than anyone at the table except Jessup and Marai, looked nonetheless affronted at being called a child. The vampire queen sat back and glared daggers at the shadow prince. How many of these shadow illusionists do you require, Baal? Kaya asked. Not many, compared to the size of your population, Baal said lightly. Worldwide, I mean to establish eleventy-one circles of six reservists each. Should you doubt my motives, Marai, I remind you that your lightbringers would still outnumber them by more than ten to one. Marai grimaced, but said nothing. And do you give your word that these agents will not be used against mortals? Kaya asked. I make no such promise. Baal said evenly. Come, Majestrix, even the Lightbringers may slay a mortal if the need is dire. I will not do my work half-hobbled. If history is any judge, Richter growled, your work is mostly about conquest and subjugation. No one in Metamore has forgotten how you used Nasage, Baal. We aren't eager for a repeat performance. Entirely understandable, Baal allowed. But do not mistake my methods for my goals. You do not begin to comprehend my purpose. So why don't you tell us your purpose? Talia snapped. These games of yours grow tiresome, Prince. Baal did not smile at her this time. The air grew suddenly cold, and shadows gathered around the prince like a nest of serpents, a twisting, writhing mantle of darkness. If I explained, you would not understand, the devil said. His voice was low and cold, and as unrelenting as a glacier. If you understood, you would not believe. You think yourself a creature of darkness, young vampire queen, but you do not know what true darkness is. Pray to the elders that you never learn. Talia seemed to shrink in her seat. The most powerful businesswoman in the world, the queen who inspired terror and worship and loyalty in a hundred thousand terrible monsters, now lowered her head, folded her hands, and said nothing more. The shadows subsided, and Baal turned his attention back to Kaya. What you propose is not unreasonable, the Majestrix said, though she didn't look happy at the prospect. What is your second condition? I require a mortal witness as I scout the way, Baal said. An escort, if you will. He gestured at Jessup in demonstration. To go with you into shadow? Richter's eyes narrowed. Why? Baal shrugged. 
You wish to send aid to the Astari, yes? If the path is to be of any use to you, it must be traversable by mortals. My understanding of what they can bear is not always accurate. My escort's presence on the journey will serve as... What is that charming human phrase? Ah, yes. The canary in the coal mine. Jessup swallowed. He had a pretty good idea of how a canary alerted people if there was a problem with the mine. It was Kaya's turn to look deathly serious. If I permit this, I want your word that you will protect him. The process of finding the way is often absorbing, Baal warned. I will not always be able to give him my full attention. However, since this escort is required both for your purposes and my own, I will bring my most skilled agent with us. She will look after him when I cannot. Kaya nodded. Very well. I shall find someone suitable. Ball pushed back his chair and rose. He pulled a business card from an inner pocket, silver letters on glossy black, and handed it to Jessup. Have the escort meet me at this address, he said, still looking at Kaya. I shall send you the contract this afternoon. Have your immortal return it with your signature. Of course. The Majestrix rose, and the others did likewise. Thank you, Baal. The devil smiled and bowed, and said nothing. Then he turned and left the room, and Jessup hurried to follow him back to the skimmer. The address Baal had given Jessup belonged to a penthouse suite in Cooley Tower, a structure of dark stone and darker glass festooned with gargoyles and jagged spires. Today the mist hid most of the building from view as they approached, which made it even more unsettling than usual. Ball said nothing during the drive, only stared out the window as if deep in thought. Jessup pulled into the fourth-level garage, parked the skimmer, and opened the back door for him. Ball gave him a distracted nod as he exited the vehicle. "'Thank you, agent,' he said distantly, not even looking at Jessup as he strode to the lift. "'I expect I'll see you soon.' "'Me?' Jessup shivered. He certainly hoped the Majestrix wasn't going to pick him as the prince's escort into shadow. He got into the skimmer and headed back to the citadel to return it to the motor pool. He had just finished signing the paperwork for the vehicle when a page came over the intercom. Agent Jessup, please report to conference room 1535. Agent Jessup to 1535. The motor pool attendant raised her eyebrows at him. Jessup shrugged. "'What's the fastest way to get there?' he asked. The attendant consulted her maps of the Citadel. "'Express lift 17, North Concourse?' She gestured to a door at the far end of the garage. "'Go through there and turn right at the third intersection. Thanks.' The conference room was at the end of a long, narrow hallway on the 15th floor, mostly occupied with administrative offices for the Citadel. White walls, acoustic tile ceilings, and tan carpets gave the place a bland, bureaucratic feel, as far removed as possible from the dramatic architecture of the Citadel's public areas. Jessup saw no one in the offices he passed. Evidently, this wing had been given the day off as well. The conference room door bore a sign with the room number and nothing else. Jessup knocked, waited, and, hearing no reply, tried the door handle. It opened. Sister Marai, Lord Richter, and Majestrix Kaya sat at the conference table waiting for him.
Oh, Jessup murmured. Have a seat, dear, Sister Marai said, pulling out a chair beside her. We need to talk. Jessup sat. You want me to go with him, don't you? Want isn't quite the word I would use, Richter said sourly, but he's got us in a corner. Either we play things his way or we give up the plan altogether. But why me? Jessup asked. Isn't there someone better qualified? Mirai put her hand on his. Clyde, dear, shadow walkers aren't exactly common. Ball wasn't lying when he said the knowledge had been suppressed. Besides, Richter said, the fewer people who know about this business, the better. You're already in the loop. That's true, sir, Jessup admitted. But wouldn't the commander be a better choice? I know he doesn't know shadow magic, but if something goes wrong... Mirai shook her head. Janus wouldn't be the best choice for a mission like this. He doesn't cope well with moral ambiguities. Anyway, his position is too sensitive to expose him to Ball's influence. Shadow can do strange things to people, and there's no telling what secrets Ball might ferret out of him if he were compromised. Jessup's heart sank a little. So, in other words, I'm expendable. Mirai squeezed his hand. Oh, don't take it so hard, dear. Being a light-bringer means serving something bigger than yourself. For the right mission, we're all expendable. Even me. The Majestrix raised a hand for silence. Her stone-gray eyes looked into Jessup's, and he saw there a well of deep compassion and love. For the Astari, yes, but also for him. When she spoke, her voice was low and grave. Agent Jessup, I will not command you to do this. In the end, it is your choice. Jessup nodded, thinking. I don't want to do it, he admitted. But if I don't, you'll have to find someone else. Yes, the Majestrix said. And if he doesn't find a way through Shadow for you, then more of the Astari will die. Majestrix Kaya's eyes glistened. Yes. Will he keep his promise to protect me? He will keep his word to the letter of the contract, Kaya said. It is his way. Jessup nodded again. He could feel fear twisting in his gut, whispering at him to say no, to walk away. But then he thought of the Astari, a peaceful people on the verge of dying out because of another nation's greed and treachery. If he could help them, he could save more lives in one mission than most Lightbringers saved in a lifetime. And wasn't saving people the whole reason he had become a Lightbringer in the first place? All right, he said. I'll do it. And that was part one. Tune in next week for part two. Many of the characters in this episode are immortals, and they actually date back to the original Metamore Keep stories that Metamore City grew out of. Richter was a character created by Chris Hoekstra, who sometimes goes by the name Deranged Kitsune. You can find Richter's adventures before he became the God of War at metamorekeep.com, along with a much younger version of Mirai, and occasional appearances by Kaya, Akala, and some of the others in this episode. 
Even before the gods fell to Earth, they weren't shy about meddling in events at Metamore. Now, let's get to some feedback. Hi, Chris. It's the Villas. I'm sure you were expecting this call because I love calling with no lines. Nobody else seems to, but I like it. Anyways, it sounds like you've got a uh, a good plan for keeping the Metamore City podcast alive and keeping writing. And you know what? All those production values are fabulous, but in my experience so far, um, what people really want is the story. Um, and the uh, I'm not sure that the full cast audio is a really uh, really good medium. And I think doing audio drama is audio drama, and doing prose is prose, and uh, a good voice can do a single read just fine. Um, and uh, I'm working on a few stories for you, so maybe I can give you a week off once in a while. Bye. Thanks, Nabilis. I am still fond of the full cast audiobook, and when it's done well, it can be amazing. I think Abby Hilton's Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, J. Daniel Sawyer's Down from Ten, and T. Morris's Billabub Battings all proved how a full cast can add value to the listening experience, and I think so did Making the Cut. The problem, of course, is that it is an absolute ton of work, so from now on I intend to save it for special occasions. Audio drama is fun, too, and I hope to do more of it in the future. And I can't wait to hear your own future Metamore stories. They're always a big treat for me. I just want to let you know how excited I am to hear your work back up. I've been missing it for a lot. been listening to all your other stuff before and really been missing it. So thank you very much for putting your work back out there. I appreciate it. You're welcome, and thanks for the encouragement. It's good to be back. I received email feedback from Amanda Sterling, who writes, Hi, Chris. You're back! And the crowd goes wild. Wanted to let you know, I am going to miss hearing things unseen, sniff sniff, wipe a tear, but I am very, very excited about The Raven and the Writing Desk. I enjoy hearing your update, and I am looking forward to your short stories and musings about writing. Long live the magic spreadsheet! And I completely understand how life can get turned upside down with family and dogs and, yes, laundry. How does that pile never, ever seem to get smaller? Always on the bright side, dogs, laundry, and all, Amanda. Thanks for writing in, Amanda. I'm excited, too. And if I can ever figure out how to make that laundry pile disappear, I'll let you know. Lastly, Abigail Hilton chimed in on Facebook with this message. Hey, Chris Lester, welcome back to the mic. Cowrie Catchers fans, you'll probably like Chris's Metamore City. He's Gwaine's voice actor. He and Dan Sawyer were doing full cast before I was, and their work inspired me. Unfortunately, they were both planning projects even more massive than the Cowrie Catchers series, and they ran out of steam. This is a huge problem with full cast production. It is so labor-intensive that no single person can maintain it forever. Storytellers sometimes feel that if they can't keep telling stories in the format to which the audience has become accustomed, they shouldn't keep telling stories at all. Sometimes listeners even say things that reinforce this attitude, giving us the impression that they're more attached to the medium than to the stories. 
People who felt that way about my work have hopefully wandered off a long time ago. If I was still trying to do full cast, you would not be listening to Hunter's Unlucky right now. It would probably still be in production. The Scarlet Albatross would not be written, and Jager Thunder would not be three-quarters finished. Exactly, and I would jump in here and note that Dan Sawyer's productivity has gone way up in recent years, too. Both he and Abby have been writing steadily, and they have the work to show for it. Both of them were big inspirations for me to get back in the game. And if you haven't been following their work recently, check out Dan's stuff at jdsawyer.net. He's got a ton of new books and short stories, so I won't list them all here. For Abby, if you're a fan of cowrie catchers, then you must check out Hunter's Unlucky. I listened to Rish Outfield's narration of the book, and it is outstanding. Definitely Abby's best work to date. You can find it on Audible or in print at Amazon.com. I also want to give you all a heads up about a special offer Dan has going on right now. If you're interested in reading some good advice about writing and publishing, I want you to go to storybundle.com. That's story, B-U-N-D-L-E dot com. For those who haven't heard of this thing, the way it works is that authors get together to offer a bundle of ebooks that are all centered around a certain theme. They then offer this bundle for sale for a limited time, and you pay whatever the bundle is worth to you. If you pay at least $15, you get additional bonus content that you can't get any other way. As an added wrinkle, you also get to decide what percentage of your payment goes to the authors and what percentage goes to keep Story Bundle running. The default is a 70-30 split in favor of the authors, but you can adjust that to whatever you like. If you so desire, you can also choose to donate 10% of your purchase price to a charity that's designated by the authors in the bundle. This month's bundle includes Dan's book, Making Tracks, which is a complete guide to recording your own audiobooks. It also includes five other books chosen by best-selling hybrid author Kristen Catherine Rush, who is one of the smartest business people in the world of writing. Pay at least $15 and you'll get five more books, plus a 40% off coupon for Juto, which is an ebook publishing software program. The bundle is only available until June 4th, so hurry over to storybundle.com and check it out. That does it for this week. If you'd like to leave feedback, you can email me at metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call 641-715-3900 and enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. I'd love to hear from you. And if I get more voicemails, I'll play them here. And if I get too many of them, I'll put together a feedback show. You can find me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. And my blog is at chrislester.org. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester signing out. This podcast is copyright 2015 by Liminal Corvid Press and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.